Most people who are asked to put a job spec together usually come up with a wish list of what they want without giving enough thought to, is this realistic and can we afford this person? The Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond. With Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Belent Osman, from just outside of London, here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, here on the Northern California coast. Well, Shelley, this episode is all about finding and hiring the best talent for your company. And to do that, we are joined by Paul Rayner. Now, I've known Paul for a number of years, and he is the founder and managing partner for a company called Oakstone International, a hiring firm that um, hires the best talent both here in the UK, but also in the US as well. And he gives his best advice on how to do that on both sides of the pond. This is a topic that isn't spoken about a lot, or you don't find tutorials about this all over the place. But this arguably is a key to the success of any company, finding the right people. And I'm delighted to welcome Paul Rayner, who's now joined us on the Startup Sensations podcast. Uh, Paul, good uh, afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Belent. Great to see you, Paul. Uh, let me start off by asking you about your own business. I mean, I know you started up Oakstone International, I believe, about 28 years ago. Uh, can you just share with the audience really what your business is about and what the speciality is for Oakstone? We are a specialist recruitment company who work globally, but primarily in North America and Europe. We spend a lot of time working with small to medium-sized, high-growth SaaS businesses, We've ended up primarily focusing on SaaS businesses that are between 20 and $200 million turnover type businesses. We also have a division that we set up five, six years ago that's focused on the fintech sector. But the, the core business is working with SaaS organizations, 80% of whom are probably North American, usually coming out of either Boston or California. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the Midwest, Austin, Texas, and so on uh, over the more recent years. Um, but working with those organizations as they expand internationally, and at the point they get to being successful and international, they usually move um, and have their first office in the UK for fairly obvious reasons, which is the language and the ease of, and then the cultural similarities. Sometimes we get involved in recruiting the first person on the ground, but more frequently, it's the team below them that we get involved in. And then, frankly, we recruit whatever people they want. It's commercially focused people. They tend to want to build a team of three to 30 people in the UK. And then it's Germany and other places in mainland Europe. So Scandinavia, Holland, France, Spain, Portugal, occasionally. And then we'll work with them as they expand into the Middle East and Far East as well. So what are the key challenges that, let's say, a U.S. company would face in setting up a team here in Europe, perhaps, let's say, here in the U.K., that they wouldn't have maybe faced in the U.S.? The biggest challenges that we see them facing is the cultural differences, the issues around different laws and legislations in Europe, a great deal 
of North American people don't understand that you can't open an office in France and have those people sell into Germany or vice versa. That doesn't normally work. That you need to pay people significantly more basic salary in Scandinavia. That the um, laws of hiring and firing people in France are very different from they are certainly in America, in the States. When you're looking at North America, you can usually hire somebody in, in, in anywhere, any major state, and they can um, sell into other parts of North America. That's just not the same in Europe. So there are lots of idiosyncrasies, lots of differences, mostly cultural and legal. So, Paul, I'm, I'm kind of curious because I read a lot about trends in working. Um, and, you know, as younger generations start to fill out the ranks in these companies, especially startups early stage, it feels like the attitudes towards working are very different these days. Yes, you're right. Dramatic changes and differences. Most people who are leading organizations um, of the type we're talking about would like to carry on working the way they have traditionally done so over the last 20 years. But the culture, certainly in the last 10 or even five years, has changed dramatically. COVID has had an impact on this, of course. Um, but people want to work remotely. They want to work from home. They don't want to go into the office more than a couple of days a week, if at all. Um, and this is clearly difficult, especially for companies that are small and high growth. It's enormously difficult to attract, onboard, train, develop a team of people when they're all disparate. They might be all over the place. How do you how do you train and mentor somebody when you're based in London and the person you're talking to is in Munich or Berlin or Frankfurt or Stockholm or whatever? So it's, that has been a major change and a major challenge. And I don't believe it will last um, successfully. More and more of the larger organizations, certainly as they grow, are finding it more difficult to build cultures to mentor and motivate teams of people when they don't see them. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, my observation is it's really hard to get to know people on Zoom. People don't develop the same kind of interpersonal skills. So when you hire for a really early stage company, how do you try to find those people who kind of have a little of both or, I mean, where do you look even? When you take a thorough brief from a client and fully understand the type of person and profile they're looking for, it's not too difficult to go and find those people. It's just time consuming. So you know, if we do a search, we'll identify between 80 and 120 potential candidates and go and speak to them. If the client has said, I need this person in the office in Oxford Street five days a week, then we have to take that into account. But in, in today's marketplace, you're going to find that of those 120 long list people, 80 of them will say, no, I'm not doing that. So you immediately reduce your target audience by a factor of whatever, 60, 70 percent. Mm -hmm. I've just completed a search with one of my team for a CFO. They're happy for the person to come from anywhere in Europe, but they want them in the office at least four days a week in central London. Um, and they won't compromise. So frankly, you start early with that question to not waste a lot of time. And yet you've got people, you know, Elon Musk has just done it with Twitter, right? Um, everybody has to be in the office or they can leave. Uh, so you know, some people think it'll work and others don't. And it's true, you know, we've, we've just managed to get through the last three years um, of COVID where many of us were working from home. 
certainly the vast majority of candidates and clients have not met each other. I mean, I found, <laughs> yeah, having been recruiting almost 40 years, I find it totally astonishing that people who are earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a year and are going to sit in senior positions are joining companies never having shaken someone's hand. So, Paul, um, from a founder's point of view, especially in early stage business, where especially where money is tight, what would you recommend founders to do if they're looking to grow uh, a team, hire a number of people? What are some of the mistakes they make and what are some of the advice that you would give them in their, in their approach to, to building a, a really high quality team? Okay, this is Paul Rayner speaking very directly. Most people don't put enough effort, thought and process into it. Most people who are asked to put a job spec together, especially a, a commercially focused, normally sales oriented job spec together, is that if it has to be delivered on Monday morning, people start thinking about it on a Sunday evening and they'll rattle off on their head, these are the things I think we should be looking for and these are the key criteria that I think we need and the strengths and weaknesses that we need from somebody. But very often, they haven't thought that through in great detail and they haven't thought through, can we get all those qualities in, in one person? Can we afford to have all those qualities in one person? Because when you have that many qualities in one person, those people tend to be a lot more expensive. Can I then attract that person to my business? So people usually come up with a wish list of what they want as a job specification without giving enough thought to is this realistic and can we afford this person? And of course, experienced people will get this right. But so many of the people we deal with are in young, high growth companies and they very often haven't done this before or not many times. You know, it's, when, it's when a search company like ours come up with a short list of candidates that people say the top three people are brilliant, but they're 100 grand over budget. And we've said, we'll bring you the best people and you can choose you know, what level you go to. And of course, everybody wants the best candidate, but they no can't money. afford to pay <laughs> the best candidate. Um, so it doesn't work. So I think it's getting that right. It's taking the advice. It's, it's working with, very often people don't work with um, you know, HR or talent acquisition closely enough, early enough to get quality people and have proper profiles written and, and, and be realistic about what you go looking for. And then making sure that you can not only afford those people, but can attract them. You know, I'll often sit in front of a new prospect and, and, and take a brief and say, yep, I understand exactly what you're looking for. We can do that. We can find these people. We can bring you a shortlist. How are you going to attract them to join you? It's being realistic about what you need, what you want, what you can afford and what you can attract. Yeah. I mean, the number of times I've seen somebody hire the wrong person and waste six, nine, 12 months because they didn't think it through properly in the first place. And that's the most expensive mistake, isn't it? Yeah. Do you find there are cultural differences? So how would your experiences differ from, let's say, the UK versus the US? My experience in this is that the US tends to be a little bit more higher and fire. So they'll make a decision more quickly, give that person a try. And if it doesn't work out, they'll rotate them and try again, which is, we, as we've just mentioned, is an enormous waste of time and money. And culturally, it's a disaster. The other big mistake, and this is a probably a shout out for a good old recruitment company, but there are too often people hire through people they know. Now, if I sit down with a prospect who wants to build a business in Europe and say, what's your advice on how to do this? Of course, I would say, well, before you go and pay for a recruiter, you should look at your own network. 
but don't limit it to your own network. Because, you know, if you've got two or three people that you think are awesome, great. But if you go and pay a recruiter 20,000 to bring you a shortlist to compare those against, that 20,000 will often be paid back tenfold compared to hiring your buddy or your person that you did a great job in this other company that then joins you and isn't successful. Or you go on LinkedIn and put out a job offer <laughs> and see what comes in. Yeah. I'm loath to say, uh, you know, it's a waste of time to, reaching out to people on LinkedIn because if it works, that's great. But don't be tempted to take someone that's an eight out of 10 on your list uh, instead of a nine and a half or a 10 out of 10, just because you know them and won't have to pay a fee for them. That's usually a disaster. You started this company 28 years ago. Can you just go back to a time before the startup of your business and tell us a bit about your background and what led you to do what you're doing today? Money. Um, no, I mean, I mean, when I say money, I don't mean to make a fortune. I mean to earn a living and put food on the table. Um, I didn't enjoy school. I decided I worked on my uncle's farm. I was encouraged to go to agricultural college. I spent four or five years driving tractors and milking cows and then realized that this was not a way to make any money as much as I quite enjoyed it. And my brother said, you know, go, you can talk and you can listen, go get a sales job. And I spent three years in the toughest kind of sales, knocking on doors with a typewriter under my arm, selling in central London. Did quite well out of that, made some decent money. And then, but I wanted it to be a bit more professional. And I went looking for a job and I went to speak to a recruiter. And they said, Paul, you've got an agricultural degree and no one will give you a job in a computer sales company without a degree. But why don't you come and work for us? So I did that. And that, that was about 38 years ago. Um, and I took a 50% cut in my salary to join a, a a company that recruited. I was the sixth person in a company that recruited salespeople into the technology sector. And I worked in that for a few years, six years, and then set up on my own. I worked for myself, by myself for a short period of time. Didn't enjoy that at all because I enjoyed people. I, I looked for another job, frankly. I wanted to work with people. And some some people out there will have heard of James Kahn who was one of our dragons in Dragon's Den for a while, which is, what do they call it in North America, Shark Tank? Oh, yeah, Shark Tank. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was an interesting guy, but he, he was working with an American called Doug Bugey and setting up a recruitment franchise. And they offered me a job to go and work for them, which I did for a couple of years, which frankly was like, Doug was the, I think he was probably the most knowledgeable person in international recruitment at the time. He, he'd spent a lot of time working for an American uh recruitment franchise you guys will know this MRI in the states and I learned a lot from him I was working 18 hours a day just about and and eventually thought you know I'm not going to do this for forever and I stepped out and set up my own business initially as part of the franchise I didn't get a great deal out of being part of that franchise because I'd been a, a trainer in that organization and all I really got out of it was a, a network that didn't work particularly well in those days um, and a trainer trainer to come and help my people that I'd trained. So um, it wasn't a huge advantage to me. And so I got out of that as quickly as possible, um, which was about five years. So that took me to 2001. And since then, I've been growing Oakstein. And it's, uh, that, that's how I set it up. I mean, it was almost uh, out of necessity, as I say, put food on the table. But I love what I do. And I, I'd learned a lot 
working with different types of organizations and different sales leaders. And yeah, I just enjoyed doing it. So I set this business up and I've enjoyed it ever since. I'm very curious, Paul, because today startups need to hire people and they're caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, they want the highest quality people for the lowest possible price. But there's also been, I think, over time, you've seen this, I'm sure, changes in how compensation is defined. So compensation today can be some sort of combination of direct salary, future ownership of the business. So what are you seeing? What are some of the creative ways that are appealing to talent to bring them into these startup organizations? So I've seen this cycle in in the late 90s and the very early 2000s before the dot-com crash. Everybody wanted to have giant chunks of equity if they possibly could, stock options or stock. And quite a lot of people made a lot of money out of it and others lost quite a bit. So that then became less interesting to people. And I've seen that come back. So today, the good people over the last three years, the good people have been looking for stock play. Yeah, How much can they get out of uh, being involved in the startup and getting some either stock or options? So I haven't seen it change that much other than to go from people wanting stock to then not being interested in it to now wanting it again. Um, and and the, there's no question whatsoever, the best people will ask that question early. You know, what's the stock play? How do I get some some action? Because if they're good enough, they know that they can they can get it. They can affect it too on the upside. Well, absolutely. They can they can affect the upside of it totally. And if you want a top 10 sales guy, um, and I mean that without sexual focus, guy could be a girl as well, then you should be offering some kind of equity. Actually, you raise an interesting point too, because we've talked to various guests about, you know, male, female kind of diversity. Do you see, uh, as people are hiring, that dimension has changed at all? In other words, are people going out and looking for women to show that they have a diverse team? Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there and what you'd advise. I won't mention the organization, but recently we were recruiting a a board-level person and the CEO said to me, you know, it wouldn't wouldn't do us any harm if this was a lady. And And I smiled at him and I said, We'll bring you the best people, and you can choose who you hire. So I'm, you know, I'm absolutely passionate about this. I think we're making terrible, terrible mistakes and decisions based on the perceived importance of of diversity. You know, I'm passionate about this myself. Whether it's for my own business or my clients' business, my job, our job, is to find you the best talent. I don't care who it is. I don't care what color they are, what their sexual orientation is, how old they are. It just doesn't matter to me. And I don't think it should matter to clients. We've had phone calls from people saying, do you know, your website, we're a bit, bit concerned about signing terms of business with you because your website doesn't look very diverse. And I think, well, hold, hold on a second. You know, do you know who we are? Do you know where we're based? Because more than 50% of my organization is female controversially, mostly of childbearing age. So I could easily lose them to pregnancy and families and so on. I don't care. I hire people based on their talent. So I think it's incredibly important that companies are realistic about this and hire the best people. 
Um, and I think it's so important that we have diversity in the workplace, but it should be diversity of culture, diversity of thinking, diversity of capability. It shouldn't be, you know, 20 salespeople that are different colors coming from the same university with the same thinking and the same education. So uh, let's imagine a scenario where you've come up with a shortlist of three, four, five really excellent candidates that meets the brief. What would you recommend is the best process for the hiring team to go through and assess those candidates and pick out the best one? You won't be surprised to hear I've got a strong opinion on this. Um, I think it's important to have a good process um, and to follow that with every candidate that you bring through the process. But I would recommend that if you've got the time to give people psychometric profiling, I psychometrically profile everyone that comes into my business and I do it to maximize my knowledge and information about those people. And it encourages us to ask better questions of them at second and third meetings. We don't ever rule people out based on the psychometric profile, but it does give us a really good understanding of what their drivers are, which team they're best to focus on, which projects we might put those people into, how analytical they are. You know, if you've got someone who's strongly analytical and process-oriented, then you'll put them on on recruiting more technical positions. If they're very strong in terms of emotional intelligence and they're powerful and sales-oriented, then you'll have them recruiting salespeople and sales-focused people. It makes more sense to do that. So I think first interview, second interview, psychometric profile, usually if, if, they're, if they're going to be responsible for communicating a message about the company, gives them some kind of presentation to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know that they can actually present rather than um, fall over at the last hurdle when when they're asked to do that or turn into a quivering mess in front of the people. Um, so I think that's important. I'd, I'd take them out for lunch or dinner as well. I'd get them into a social environment so that you know how they behave in, in that type of, yeah, in that environment. Yeah. I've had somebody offer who was invited to a uh, either a sales kickoff or something, they withdrew the offer because just drank a little too much and got talked a little too much and didn't behave appropriately. Um, and if you don't put someone into that environment, you, you know, if they ever are going to be in that environment in your work, it's a good way to understand how they're going to behave. You may remember that you helped me hire some salespeople, Paul, all those years back in, in, my, in my corporate career. I do. And you may also remember that, I, that, that the majority of the time when it got to a shortlist stage, I actually wanted to meet people uh, probably down the pub, yeah. uh, if I'm honest, um, and, and get to know the person. And then after that, make it a bit more formal with perhaps a presentation to a wider team, et cetera. And I, I found that that was uh, uh, an important step of the uh, the process. Could I just move on and ask about your own business and how you went about setting up uh, a US division for Oakstone? You obviously have been very successful here in the UK. And then some years ago, you set up a, a, an operation in the US. Can you just take us through what what drove you to do that? What were some of the challenges and what were some of the really interesting things that you found that were differences between the two countries? I wanted to expand our business. We were thinking of opening an office in central London that we didn't have. Um, none of my team members were particularly keen on working in central London. Um, and the main reason we wanted to expand the business or, or one of my frustrations about our business 
was that we are eminently well placed to recruit the first person in Europe for the US software companies as they grow. Um, but we very rarely got that opportunity because people don't know who we are. You know, people in people in in San Francisco or Santa Clara, wherever it happens to be, they, they don't know who Oakstone is. So that they think, oh, that's going to open an office in 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 Europe. Who do we speak to? And usually the VCs will say, well, go to Hydric and Struggles or Corn Ferry or Russell Reynolds or Norman Brook. And you know, those are nothing wrong with those companies, but they're not specialists in our field and they probably don't know they're not as well connected to the people that those companies want to hire as we are. Mm-hmm. So it's always frustrated me that we didn't get that opportunity. Uh, and frankly, it was an inspiration moment that I woke up one day and thought, well, why don't we open an office in San Francisco? I didn't know how easy or difficult that would be. I began to explore it. Um, I got on an airplane. In fact, I spoke to my team about thinking of doing it. And one of them said, I'd be interested in being involved in that. So the pair of us jumped on an airplane and... It was extraordinary. I hadn't been. It was, San Francisco is one of the few places in the world that I wanted to go to that I hadn't been to. And just driving up from, you know, the airport up to the city, every everyone around, every building around me was either a client or somebody I'd worked with. And it was very, very exciting. And we both said, we've got to do this. We've got to open an office here. Um, and of course, there are lots of challenges. And we worked with an accountant here in the UK that recommended well, you've met Stuart Bagshaw um, mm. and worked with him. So he, he he introduced me to Stuart, who was as a British guy, ex technology industry. He he was taken to uh, to North America with Rank Xerox. So Stuart helped me enormously. He was running a company called Babley, where they help UK companies go to America and they help American companies come to the UK. He was enormously helpful in help in in the setting up of a business all the legal all the legal issues introducing me to lawyers introducing me to people that could help us get visas so i went through that i and i would strongly recommend that people doing this use somebody of that kind there are he's not unique there are companies that do this so we were there for three or four years and there were challenges but not great ones the, the biggest challenges were finding people that would join us as a UK business without a strong presence in North America. But what we found was, frankly, Bullent, is that we didn't need to have a presence in North America. So we're, we're currently, we, last year we turned over a little over four million pounds sterling, and 25% of that came through our American business, even though we're based here in the UK. So we built up great relationships with people while we were there. The fact that we have a, a, a Oakstone International LLC based in the States allows people to pay us in America and um, feel comfortable about doing so. So just having done that was enough. If I had come across the right person, I would have employed or tried to employ a player manager to run the business there and we would probably have grown it. But Given that we're able to do that recruitment for American companies from the UK, um, we do a lot of work from two o'clock in the afternoon till 6 p.m. in the evening working on U.S. roles. So we've managed to find a way to do that very successfully. And and I've always enjoyed working internationally from the UK. You know, as a headhunting organization, people are just as happy to take a call, probably happier to take a call from a Brit with a British accent 
as they would accept a call from somebody local. So especially given that we now don't even need to meet people, it's it's been really easy to do that. And the final question for you, Paul, uh, uh, is is really around the future. So how do you see the future of the recruitment business? And um, and what about the, the, the latest technology, especially around artificial intelligence coming? Do you see that disrupting what you do and the the processes that founders have to go through to hire the best people that they can find? I, I see AI will definitely impact, I think, everybody to one degree or another. I'm very glad to say that my brother, who runs his own business, is older than me. When I set, when I got involved in technical recruitment 28 years ago, about a year in, he said to me, do you think it's something that's going to be around in 10 years' time? And you know, Are you still going to be being successful in that? Um, and I feel the same way today about AI. If you're a CV-shifting organization, if you're working off a database, if you're using LinkedIn and job boards to find candidates, then AI can do that. So I think that AI and new technologies will replace a lot of the companies that are putting bums on seats. That, you know, <laughs> they will replace a lot of those people. You know, I'm 65 now. I, I probably won't be doing this in 10 years' time. I don't see over the course of the next 10 years that AI is going to manage to make the difference between the interpersonal relationships you need to have with top performers to sell them on why they might want to leave company A, who's a top flight organization, and go to company B that might be slightly different and slightly better or slightly better positioned. I don't think AI is going to replace the human touch when it comes to senior level search. Good. I'm glad to hear that. It's a people business. Um, you know, sales is a people business. I don't think computers and machines and however smart the artificial intelligence is will, or more importantly, should replace the human interaction between us folks talking to people. How's it going to do that? Uh, we've only spent 30, 40 minutes having a conversation but it's been enjoyable, it's been fun, it's been challenging, it's been interactive. How do you do that with a computer? I have this mental image of this computer sitting there trying to talk to us. <laughs> May I make one more point? Please. Somebody said to me recently on this point of working from home, how do you decide when to pop a difficult question to a colleague if you're not with them in the room? How do you decide to pop up and go and get have a cup of coffee with them and say, hey, do you mind if I take Thursday afternoon off because I'd like to go and watch the ball game? When they might have just had the worst possible sales call and they're grumpy and miserable and angry, you're going to get a no. And you don't want to know. So how do you pick your moments? <laughs> and on that positive point about the uh, the future of the human race, um, I shall uh, want to say thank you very much, Paul, for what's been a really fascinating and enjoyable conversation. Really uh, enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, Shelley, I really enjoyed uh, seeing Paul again. It's been a while since I last saw him. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting conversation about how best to go about hiring the best talent. I thought it was excellent. I thought he had many, many gems of wisdom in there. Um, let's unpack it a little bit. So one of the things um, that I thought was very important and actually crucial to the hiring process is his observation that lots of times the hiring manager 
just doesn't prepare properly, doesn't do the work to really articulate clearly what is the person, who is the person, what do they look like, the person they need to hire. And that's interesting because it's not an easy chore to really define well what are all of the attributes this person has to have. You, you know, it's easy to say, oh, this kind of education or that kind of work experience. But when you go beyond that and you talk about other kinds of maybe softer skills, that it's really important to get down the thought process of who this person ideally will be that we hire. So uh, that one was very impactful for me. Well, for me, I think it was really around getting to know the people on the shortlist. I mean, we spoke about um, the difference between using a hiring firm uh, such as the one that Paul runs or, or trying to do that yourself. I mean, these days it's relatively easy to post a job on LinkedIn or, or speak to your network and find, find good people. And of course, if you can do that, that clearly can save some time and some effort. But of course, there are risks associated with that. And I think where Paul and his company and companies similar to Paul's come in is to, is to understand a, a good brief and what you say is important, uh, that that needs to be very, very clearly thought through as to what exactly the company is looking for and, and also what is possible to, to, to find for the budget that you have. And, uh, and once you get to that shortlist, you do need to go through a process to understand the people and, and to make the right choice. And, you know, something I, I, I mentioned uh, as well on the show, uh, on the interview, uh, was that I always like to actually meet people socially as well as in a formal setting, because in a formal setting, they'll be on their best behavior and they'll, they'll obviously do things uh, that they think they ought to do. But in a social setting perhaps in a pub, over a pint of beer, um, or something of that nature. A glass of wine in a nice restaurant. <laughs> Absolutely. You can find out the real people underneath the covers. And for me, that was really important when I had good people, to understand the character of the person, yeah. the, the values that they hold, and to assess the cultural fit to the business, as well as, of course, the skills and experiences they have. You know, the other thing I thought was interesting was some of his commenting on uh, trends in compensation and how, you know, equity used to be such an important aspect and then it kind of went out of favor and now it's very much back in because, you know, as a startup, a founder is trying to hire talent for his or her firm uh, and make the best decision possible, you want to have the compensation package match the expectations of the person coming on board. And I always loved the inclusion of equity because it it really creates skin in the game yeah. and you know that person coming on board knows that they can have a direct role in improving their compensation so to speak absolutely thanks for listening to startup sensations don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode get in touch with us email hello at startupsensations.com and don't forget to follow the Startup Sensations podcast on our LinkedIn page and watch episode highlights on our YouTube channel. We love hearing your feedback and questions, so send us a message or a voice note to the WhatsApp number you'll find in the description. And that's it for another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast. Our thanks goes to our guest this week, Paul 
and we look forward to seeing you next time. See you soon.